Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 99. Today's episode is all about the link between mental health disorders and genius. Genes are turned off and on and change with environment. Doing what I'd like to call workarounds. What are coping tools that you built to manage some of the symptoms? Which is really you teaching your brain how to handle by working around that neurocircuitry, probably creating stronger other neurocircuitry to manage the symptom, whether the symptoms attending or, or organizing or remembering things or dampening impulsivity creates changes, not in the area where maybe let's say the wiring is already different and difficult, but you know, in other areas, it's sort of like think about when people have a stroke. They can't speak right away or they can't move. They have hemiparesis to start with. Uh, rehab has to do with creating new connections that allow them to do those same behaviors, but via a different route. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit. And the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Did you know that there's an association between creativity and major mental disorders? And this has been known for hundreds of years. The ancient Greeks thought of both as having been touched by the gods. And Aristotle said, there is no genius without having a touch of madness. But there's so many, and they're pretty extreme. Like Lincoln had depression, Beethoven, bipolar, Michelangelo, autism, Isaac Newton, bipolar, autism, and schizophrenia. Charles Darwin had OCD, hypochondria, and agoraphobia. Winston Churchill, also bipolar. Elon Musk, Asperger's. And although that diagnosis doesn't officially exist anymore, if you've been listening a while, you know the major problems with the DSM or the diagnostic manual. So I feel like it's respectful to just call it like Elon himself calls it. Billie Eilish, Tourette syndrome. Will Smith, ADHD. Mel Robbins also has ADHD. Richard Branson, dyslexia. You get the picture. But it makes you wonder, does one cause the other? Or is there some common underlying factor that causes both things at once? Or maybe the chicken and the egg paradox doesn't even matter because once you're in it, the best thing you can do is learn how to optimize your situation. I was reading some articles in the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Sciences because I'm a cool mom. <laughs> and I came across a really interesting one by Nicholas Pediatitakis called The Origins and Mechanisms in the Development of Major Mental Disorders, a Clinical Approach. Well, this paper says that, yes, creativity and major mental disorders do share a common pool of people with an extreme temperamental variant. And the difference in those who turn out to be a creative genius or another person stuck mainly in their major mental disorder is often whether or not they have other qualities like curiosity, energy, intelligence, or they were lucky enough to have lived in a nurturing and complementary environment. So I guess the bad news is that as children, we don't have a lot of control over those things, unless you happen to be a super self-aware child like Matilda or something, <laughs> who knows that she can do better than the shit show that she was born into. But the good news is, 
As adults, we can reparent ourselves in a way that gives ourselves what we had always needed to thrive. Your environment is the easiest to change. For me, that looks like setting up my environment in a way that will make my goals the easiest to dive into with the least amount of friction. So prioritizing convenience over cleanliness even. (laughs) A long time ago, I read Marie Kondo's The Art of Tidying Up, and this woman puts away her hand soap dispenser between uses. What the actual F? I know myself well enough to know that I would just stop using soap if it wasn't right there waiting for me. And the same is true with a lot of my goals. I recently got a Mac Studio in addition to my laptop, so now I have both. But there's something about having my computer in the same place, always on, with my tabs open, that makes it so much easier for me to get into the task, rather than having to get out my laptop out of my bag, set it up, plug it in, plug it into my monitor, get my mouse, turn it on. Honestly, sometimes just the thought of the prep would send me running straight for distraction instead. James Clear talks a lot about this in Atomic Habits, and if you want a refresher without reading the whole book, check out episode 109 with James Clear. It's at mindlove.com slash 109, or just find it in your podcast app. Well, the other side of the success coin for those of us with extreme temperamental variants is whether or not we're endowed with the other qualities like intelligence, tenacity, curiosity, and energy. So yeah, it might seem like you're screwed if you weren't born with one of those things. But what I've come to believe is that, yes, there is an inborn aspect to these, but for the most part, they can be learned. The problem is your mindset and your beliefs about yourself will greatly affect whether or not you're able to learn these things. And I've learned that the number one belief that you need in order to do this is the belief that you actually can, that your diagnosis isn't your doom, but more so your opportunity. But if your beliefs have always been the opposite... Things are harder for me. I'm just slow. I'm not meant for success. I can't do this. I was born flawed. If that's your foundation, you're going to have a really hard time building upon it. So what does the science say? How can we transform the source of our struggles to be the origin of our greatest strengths? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Dr. Gail Saltz. She's a best-selling author of numerous books. She serves as a medial expert for the Physicians for Human Rights and is host of the podcast, How Can I Help? She's also the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Presbyterian Hospital and a psychoanalyst with the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. Three key things we will learn are what genius really is and how it can coexist with what we consider a mental flaw in the form of a brain difference how to shift your focus from your diagnosis to your potential, and how we can foster the qualities of geniuses and high achievers in our own lives. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Dr. Gail Saltz to the show. Thanks for having me. So what inspired your latest research around the differences between 
disorders and genius when it comes to our mental wellness? Well, this connection has been striking me for quite some time. I mean, it's really sort of the nature of what I do in the sense that I have a private practice in New York City. We see a lot of, therefore, very successful people who are high achievers, but are obviously coming to me because they're suffering or struggling with a mental health issue. And so for decades, really, I've been very aware that there are very high achieving people who really, unbeknownst to others, do struggle with a serious, often mental health issue, which does not, at its better times, prevent them, obviously, from achieving and functioning highly, but at times can interfere with it. And that's usually when they come to see me. In addition, I do a lot of public education, and one of the things that I've done over the years are various series at the 92nd Street Y, which is a cultural center here in New York. And I did a talk series for many years called Psychobiography, which really meant looking at various people and their uh, psychological path or road to where they ended up. Um, in this case, I chose historic figures, so people who were not living any longer, but were basically icons in their field, so, you know, art, music, science, and or leaders, presidents, et cetera, did, you know, a discussion of not only their life path, but sort of psychologically early life. And then, you know, in terms of events and psychiatrically, what played a role? in the development of whatever their achievements were in their field and found that it was hard to find somebody to cover who didn't have a psychological or psychiatric issue, much in a way to my surprise at that point. So I, I spent a lot of time reading and researching and looking at the research that has been emerging about that correlation. I can't call it a connection because we don't know for sure what causes what. In most instances, we have some ideas, but there are very strong correlations between very particular mental illnesses or learning disabilities and the potential for very specific strengths. doesn't mean that it will necessarily come to fruition. And really what a lot of that has to do with is if you are on the mild to moderate end of a mental health issue or learning disability, you probably have a greater likelihood than the average non-ill person of manifesting these particular strengths. But if you are very ill, moderately to severely ill, then you may not manifest them because your functioning will be compromised and your ability to utilize those strengths and bring them to fruition will be diminished. And so you know, ultimately, I guess I would say the message is it's important to know when you have a mental illness or a learning disability. It's important to understand it and look for particular strengths that you can play to because you may have significant ones. But it's also important to get treatment to keep you on the mild to moderate end of whatever it is so that you can really utilize those potential strengths. I think about this a lot because it feels like everyone has some version, like you said, of, of a mental disorder. And I wonder what is considered normal? Like what do, what is the normal brain? If we all have these differences, are they actually disorders or is it more just how we express on a spectrum of ways to be as humans? 
Well, that's a great, it's a great question. And it is one that I actually address in the book early on because I really am not a fan of the word normal, mostly because of what you're alluding to, which is, you know, our brains have trillions of neurons and connections. And what that means is essentially that there's a tremendous amount of variation person to person. We, we know that close to half of all Americans at some point will struggle with a mental health disorder. So when, you, when you're starting to talk about half, it's hard to talk about normal and abnormal. And so what we do know is that there are symptoms related to undoubtedly some hard wiring in our brains that do cause tremendous suffering. And I think it's more valuable to really talk in some ways about symptoms and we in clinical practice treat symptoms more so than treating a diagnosis. A diagnosis like that, you know, reported in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5, which is sort of the Bible of psychiatry, is important for talking with insurance companies so that we have a label with a um, that we can get reimbursed, the patient reimbursed for. It's important um, to some degree to talk about potential trajectories of a collection of symptoms. You know, where's that going to go? What, what generally do, you know, responds in terms of medication or psychotherapy? Uh, what is prognostically the situation? What should we be on the lookout for? So I'm not saying it has no use to talk about diagnoses, but it's probably more helpful to talk about symptoms. And of course, there are symptoms that are not normal in the sense that they impair function. So, you know, if you, is it normal to be sad? Yes. Um, if you are clinically depressed, you are more than sad. It's lasting longer than sad. And it has reached a level where that emotion and the other symptoms that accompany it are impairing your ability to function in your life. You know, is it normal to feel anxiety? Absolutely. In fact, it can even be good to feel anxiety. But is it normal to have so much anxiety that you cannot function or participate in your work? You can't concentrate. You can't be participating meaningfully in your relationships. You can't sleep. No. And um, and that note symptoms that are deserving of treatment because, you know, again, as I said, if you're moderate to severe, you cannot uh, manifest those strengths and be successful in, in various arenas of life in the way that you would want to be. Now, there are, of course, symptoms that are, are almost always not normal. Delusions, you know, psychotic thinking, basically, where you, know, you might be hearing voices, seeing things that are not there. Um, those are in the vast minority of mental illnesses, but uh, but then you might be talking more so about normal or abnormal. So you talk about the DSM. I actually did an episode uh, a couple months back with a woman who wrote a book called Pathological, and it was basically her story of six misdiagnoses because of the DSM and kind of going into the downsides of the DSM while also... She, she seemed to equate it exactly as you did. It's almost a necessary evil <laughs> where there's a lot of flaws to it, but yes, we also need it in order to get these benefits. And I'm reminded of like alcoholism, how when people started actually saying it was a mental disorder, that's when 
they were able to get covered and help and 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 what's whatever but there's also people that have written books that say there's no real evidence that shows that your brain is different like you're creating the brain differences through this but that's all to say that how do we measure some of these differences is it just what people are reporting and saying like oh i'm struggling with this at home We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. How do we measure some of these differences? Is it just what people are reporting and saying like, oh, I'm struggling with this at home? Or are we able to actually connect to their brain and see these differences playing out? And if so, to what degree? Well, this is really in evolution. So uh, unfortunately, to date, the brain has been in terms of organs that we have, we have researched and understood pretty much the final frontier. You know, we, we um, can look at heart function and have looked at heart function for a long time. There are many illnesses where one can look at tissue or do a blood test and say yes or no, there's a there there. Unfortunately, there is no blood test for psychiatric illness or learning disability. And I'm not sure if there ever will be. But when it comes to brain imaging, we have 
increased methods of brain imaging in the last decade. So now we can look at not just structure, but also function, meaning you know activity and where activity is occurring and not, but it's, it's very complicated. As I said, trillions of neurons and trillions of connections and, and many, many different neurochemicals and areas that you know, activity means something's happening and that areas where activity means something's being suppressed and it's, it's very complex. And the thing is, the DSM is sort of the, the, should I say, the best bucket list we have right now. But it is definitely not going to be the last bucket list and the, where we end up, you know, is I can only offer my opinion. My, my opinion is it will end up someplace very different, you know, that that depression is many different things when it comes to the brain. And then this is true in other illnesses too, you know, colon cancer is, is not going to turn out to be, it, colon cancer is not one cancer. You know, there are many types of colon cancer. And um, similarly, you know, we, we now we say, okay, well, you have, do you have major depression? Or do you have bipolar disorder and do you have bipolar disorder one or two? I suspect at some point there will be many, many, many more categories of things and that will relate more to brain structure and function. And I say that for, so just to give people an example, what, like, what do I mean by that? Okay, so obsessive compulsive disorder can look wildly different from person to person, but it does have certain central unifying factors that have to do with a number of what are called obsessions, recurrent thoughts that are so sticky that you can't get them out of your mind, even though they are usually quite unpleasant and often coming along with some sort of compulsion, either a behavior or thought compulsion, that is a way of relieving yourself of the discomfort of the obsessive thought in the moment which then only lasts for the moment and, and, and serves, unfortunately, as positive reinforcement for that obsessive thought that, oh, I feel better, I did that thing, now I'm relieved. And that makes the obsession even stronger. So this goes around and around and around and really causes people tremendous suffering. But it can look very different what those thoughts are, what those behaviors are from person to person. And it does, you know, years ago, using PET scans, which look at activity by looking at basically the uptake of substances to tell you something about how active the region is, they were able to see that psychotherapy for OCD, which is usually cognitive behavioral type of psychotherapy, changed results on PET scans in people who meaningfully participated and finished a course and felt relief from their symptoms. So you could see changes. We just don't, for the most part, have, we're just not far at all into the quantifying or ways to quantify even all of the various symptoms and disorders. But some are, let's say, visible. By visible, I mean in uh, looking at attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity, you can see differences in young people who have ADHD uh, versus those that do not in an area that's called the default network, which is part of the brain that basically houses the ability to decide when you want to attend. And imagination, fantasy thought, free thinking. 
and and so there you that lets us know that there is something there there's something there that you know but what exactly that is which neurons which neurochemicals mostly involved hasn't been so well pinpointed and isn't at a point even though that was discovered not to the point where you could say hey do you have adhd well let's put you in the uh, fmri and see whether there's differences these these repeatable differences on your default network we're not there there's no there's no there there i relate to having adhd i ha- i have a hard time saying i have any of these things i don't like labeling myself anymore <laughs> i i have found that for me there's a time that the label's really helpful and usually that's in the beginning when i'm doing all the research on how to manage it but then after that i need to like let go of the label otherwise it holds me back so if i refer to it oh, that yes. way that's why yes because as i said you know people can look very different within these categories and so you you don't want to be you know there are various symptoms one can have with adhd but everybody doesn't have all of them by any stretch and for some people one of them is much more of a problem than any of the others or you know something else but um, the important thing, I think, in getting a diagnosis, if there is an applicable one, is understanding something about the potential symptoms, that you're not alone in that, that it's not a matter of, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or some other, you know, I just have to want it bad enough or be, you know, tough enough or any of those sorts of moral implications, that these are illnesses or differences, I guess I'll call, I would say these are brain differences and that result in a set of symptoms or brain differences that result in differences in learning that are not under your uh, volitional control. And that's important that people not be made to feel responsible for their suffering because they aren't. And it's also important because it lets them know about the potential treatments that are out there for them and the value of early intervention, which really matters because of course our brains are what's called plastic, meaning they do, you do keep making new neurons and new connections potentially. And what stimulates that is something external. And so it is or internal for that matter, So activity is what stimulates change. And that is a double-edged sword, meaning if you're depressed, the longer you stay depressed and the more frequently you become depressed, the more the neurocircuitry that has to do with depression will be used, will be active. And in that, it will become stronger. And that plays out, we see in studies that people who leave their depression untreated or have multiple episodes are more likely to have more episodes later. Whereas earlier treatment, cutting it off as quickly as possible, less activity, those areas don't go from basically what I would call a country road, not very well traveled, to superhighway when you have a lot of activity going on, easily traveled. So it is, the, the, the diagnoses are helpful to people to find the right kind of treatment you know, because not all treatment is great for everything. Um, And to make decisions about psychotherapy, what kind of psychotherapy, medication, yes, no, together with psychotherapy, um, lots of of different issues that are 
think, helped by knowing something about what you're dealing with. So a lot of what you said about that early intervention, and basically, like, if you intervene and you make certain changes, you have the ability to sort of reroute how your brain is going to develop because it's constantly sort of recreating itself, developing new neurons and, and new connections. And so what does that tell us about what we know or what do we know about what causes these disorders in the first place? Because it sounds like there's a possibility that it could be all environmental. If you think about like the food that we eat, the environment that we're in, the way we allow ourselves to think without realizing maybe it's not the best way to think. And I'm thinking of one of my family members has OCD and it's interesting to watch because when I was younger, it didn't seem as prevalent. And it's like the older I get, <laughs> maybe that I have more distance now. I see it. And I'm just like, this is kind of intense. I mean, it's not like being a participant on a TV show that's getting intervention intense, but it's like difficult to stay there <laughs> as somebody who's not yeah. that way. And, and it's interesting because there's the OCD and then there's the ADD and me and this person grew up together. And what you said too about understanding that you do have a diagnosis, that was really helpful for me because it's like this person's very organized and wants things a certain way and and does not understand why I cannot be that way. And to this point where I'm like over there sometimes and I'm like, I don't know why I didn't just put that away immediately. I have a child and I'm doing this and I'm thinking of 19 different things and it'll get done immediately or eventually, but I can't do it right now. And, and just really not understanding each other because we've got the, like the exact brain differences. But yeah. I'm wondering, could we have both just been born with that and then eventually it, it just increases and increases? Or could it be the food that we're eating and the, and whatever, because I have been able to manage a lot of my symptoms based on environmental changes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, where is, where's that line or the pivot point of like, what's causing what? First of all, we don't have all the answers. Um, but most research shows that for many of these conditions we're talking about, there is a genetic component, meaning it does run strongly in families, you know, and our uh, first degree relatives often have either that same disorder or disorder that's known um, from a genetic linkage point to um, also come along often with it. And more and more of that is being found out all the time. That being said, it's, there's not a gene, one gene or three genes, and it's not 100% by any stretch. So it's not some dominant gene. Uh, it's not even following the pattern of a recessive gene it's just an in, enough increase. You know there is a genetic component or biologic component, meaning you're born with it. But we also know, and this is true just of any gene we're talking about, that genes are turned off and on and change with environment. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Genes are turned off and on and change with environment. And so there is an environmental component, clearly, like who, who is going to, you know, which of you, what exactly in the environment um, changes those things, again, is not wholly known. It depends on which illness we're talking about. But, you know, we do know, for example, that you know, overwhelming trauma in young, young people increases the odds of certain kinds of mental health issues later in life, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders. Again, it's not a one-to-one. And so there clearly is some combination. It's hard for to understand this, but basically there isn't such a difference between what the environment is doing to your genes or to your biology and biology. And, you know, people often say, well, okay, but why don't I just take medication? Like, what, what's the talking going to do? Well, we, we actually do know that the talking, <laughs> the therapy, certain kinds of therapies make changes. They do that because all of our thoughts and feelings are all communicated via neurochemicals. Everything is, I mean, everything you experience and emotionally engage in and do is expressed in your brain via neurochemicals. And it's not different. It might be affecting different areas. So for example, we talk about medication tending to affect deeper brain structures more and psychotherapies more so affect it's called top-down or sort of the frontal cortex is where you learn, right? That's where you would process cognition and thought. So psychotherapy is going to affect the frontal cortex and you'll learn things. And of course, because as I explained earlier, there are trillions of connections. Ultimately, that information is passed all around the brain, but the majority of that processing happens in the frontal lobe. Whereas medication might be more so affecting, say, and not exclusively because it goes everywhere, but more so affecting deeper brain structures like the amygdala and hippocampus. And, you know, the, the, those are emotional process centers of fear and, and other intense emotion. And then it works its way up. So um, that is probably why in most studies, 
that, that look at comparing different kinds of treatments, people who are most successful through some combination of both medication and psychotherapy, because it's sort of additive, if you will. But therapy can also come in the form of, as you were alluding to, if you have ADHD, um, doing what I'd like to call workarounds. You know, what are coping tools that you build to manage some of the symptoms, which is really you teaching your brain how to handle by working around that neurocircuitry, probably creating stronger other neurocircuitry to manage the symptom, whether the symptoms attending or, or organizing or remembering things um, or dampening impulsivity, whatever it is, creating workarounds, which you may figure out on your own, or you might go to somebody who you know, knows typically what works as good workarounds to, to do that probably creates changes, not in the area where maybe let's say the wiring was already different and difficult, but you know, in other areas, it's sort of like, think about when people have a stroke, right? And they maybe they can't speak right away or they can't move, they have hemiparesis to start with. Uh, rehab has to do with creating new connections that allow them to do those same behaviors, but a different, but via a different route. So anyway, I think, yeah, it, well, to your original point, it can be hard with people with very different psychopathologies being together and having a hard time understanding where the other person is coming from and basically triggering each other with their, uh, like, I need you to do it my way because otherwise I'm very anxious, right? So, like, if you have a brother with OCD who becomes anxious when something is disorganized because organization is one of their obsessions, then they're being pinged all the time that that is not occurring. Now, ideally, if your brother understands that it is OCD and has done enough therapy to know that being present around less organization can serve as exposure to desensitize him to the need to do something compulsive about it, don't do that thing, whatever it is, oh, I'll help you and organize it, don't do it, don't get upset about it. Just sit with it. I can tolerate this. I can tolerate the anxiety this is giving me. You know, um, I can tolerate this thought, not push it away, not stick my head in a box and pretend it's not there, but like, I can tolerate this mess. Um, you know, this is my OCD thought screaming louder and louder, but I can, I can tolerate it. The more that you expose and don't compulse, the less the obsessional thought bothers you and the more that it goes away. So, I mean, when your kids, nobody knows any of that, you know, this can be really highly destructive in families and to self-esteem, right? Then kids with ADHD grow up thinking, I'm a, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, I'm a slob, I'm a, I'm a mess. I, you know, that is not good for anybody. Hence, understanding the diagnosis is good. It's not any of those things. And when learning workarounds to, you know, so how can I, set up a system to help me always remember my homework and my keys, my, you know, whatever it is, or do the things that I think are going to be important, most important um, to maybe not even just myself, but like my kids or whatever it is. Um, so maybe I'm going to have a list of those things and check them off. And then, you know, I don't have to have everything super duper beyond that. But it, it, it can be difficult if you are triggering each other without having the understanding that that's what's happening. 
Yeah, I relate to that completely. And I'm reminded of uh, years ago, I was a suicide and crisis counselor volunteer. And I remember one of the main points we learned in the training was that we're not supposed to give people answers. Like it's not helpful to say, oh, I went through that exact same thing. And this is what I did. You can tell them all the steps that you did that worked for you. And immediately that kind of shuts them down. And they're like, well, why can this person figure it out? I can't all sorts of things that are more of a negative (laughs) behavior. And what we're trying to do is ask them questions that pull out the conclusions. Like when was the last time that you successfully did this, whatever it is. But I'm reminded of that because a lot of this around coping has to do with creating those neural connections on your own and doing it over and over again to where you have these sort of new default patterns that you can create and hopefully eventually become as strong or at least sort of as strong (laughs) to where it's not as hard to, uh, kind of reroute your own behavior, your own thoughts or whatever it is you're dealing with. But I'm wondering too, because I have another family member whose child was just diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. And I was sharing, because I have ADHD, I was sharing a lot of the ways that like, you know, for me, this is something I'm really proud of. Now that I know how to manage it, there are so many benefits, which we'll get into that soon. But It was like, oh, my husband hates when people say that. Like, there's no way this is a gift, blah, blah, blah. And and so what does it get us acknowledging the link between brain differences and genius? Is that just something that we're telling ourselves to make ourselves feel better since so many of us are dealing with it? Or or what are some of the positive traits of having some of these differences? Well, look, I wrote this book not to be Pollyanna, but to show people what is in the research literature, what has been found, that this is simply true. And as I said, it doesn't mean that it's your gift and you're going to display it. It increases the odds that you will actually make something of the strength if you have insight to that possibility, if you're exposed to it, if someone's encouraging you, and if you have decent enough self-esteem to work at whatever you're, you're good at, you know, whatever you're strong at. And one of the biggest problems with mental health issues and learning disabilities is the destructive power of the issues that present in terms of self-esteem. And so really what, I'm, what I was trying to tell people is not so much, oh, lucky you, you have bipolar disorder. <laughs> no, but Although I will tell you that every single person that I asked for every single illness that I dealt with and learning disability, when I asked them, would they, if they could, you know, undo it and go back and never have this issue, would they choose that? And they all, with the exception of the person who was dealing with schizophrenia, they all said, no, this is really part and parcel of who I am. And I feel the particular things that I am able to do and I really feel proud of and good about are part of my illness, part of my learning disability. Um, schizophrenia is very, very difficult illness. I'm pretty sure even though this person is super high functioning, super accomplished, that uh, most most people would not wish to have that whenever the case is frightening and difficult. Um, but what I would say is my message was to say, hey, For years and years and years and years, we've done nothing but stigmatize these issues. And 
what has it gotten us? First of all, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's a brain illness. It's an illness like every other illness, diabetes, cancer, it's just in your brain. And, um, and that should take the moral stigma out of it if we understand that. The next thing is that the brain is very complex and that when you change one area of wiring, you inevitably change another area. And that means that, you know, things aren't uniformly necessarily problematic or symptomatic. But that being said, you do need to treat the symptoms. You do need to, as I said, look early and identify and intervene and set a person back on course. And so do you wish your child has dyslexia? No, you don't. But if you identify it early, then it can be taught how to read in the windows of time where it's easier to create new pathways for them to be able to do. They never use the same pathway that somebody who doesn't have dyslexia uses. They, they can see that on imaging, they use a different neural network. But you can create that neural network by intervening earlier. And wonderfully, you can't read the regular way. We have to teach you some other way to read. But at the same time, it turns out that because of your wiring difference, you have differences in the wiring that affects visual spatial relations, and they may be accentuated. You may be more able in this area than somebody who does not have this because of your brain wiring. And knowing that early and being able to present opportunities to do that may change the equation for you completely in the, in the world of self-esteem, um, success in life, the things that we, we all want for everybody, right? To be happy, to find satisfaction, to be content, to make the most of yourself, whatever that is. And so having those opportunities, I think is, is vitally important. And that's only going to happen if parents understand this information, of course, the individuals affected understand it, and educators understand it, to give people the opportunities to make the most of themselves. I know a lot of my listeners, well, a lot of people in the world nowadays <laughs> relate to having attention deficit disorder. My theory is that a lot of the way our society is set up, TikTok, Instagram, like it's it's creating more. I know it definitely exacerbates my ADD or decreases my ability to focus. And so what are some of the potential gifts or tendencies or sparks of brilliance that people with attention deficit disorder can access if they learn to manage some of the more difficult things? What are some of the potential gifts or tendencies or sparks of brilliance that people with attention deficit disorder can access if they learn to manage some of the more difficult things? So as I mentioned earlier, it seems that there are differences in the default network. And the issue isn't that people with ADHD can't attend. It's that the switch that consciously allows you to decide when to attend is faulty. Meaning that if something is not very interesting to you, no matter how much you might consciously still want to attend, like I have a math test tomorrow. I really don't like math. It is really boring to me, but I do want to do well on this test. So I really like to study. 
that may not be possible if you have ADHD. On the other hand, if something is very interesting to you and therefore you have increased release of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter associated with reward, then you, it, it, you not only may, the area will be bathed in dopamine in such a way that the switch will be turned on and left on in such a way that you experience what's called hyperfocus, being more focused than somebody else who may be interested in that material but doesn't have ADHD. And so hyperfocus can be a big advantage. There are, are clinicians who wonder, given looking at the life trajectory and the various elements of, for example, of the work and life of Albert Einstein, have wondered if he had ADHD, that you know, his his three monumental papers that changed the complete future of the understanding of astronomy and astrophysics were completed in two weeks' time. He, just worked around the clock and that's what we did. But in addition, because we're talking about an area that has to do with imagination, fantasy, and daydream, and original thought, the inability to regulate when you're attending and not attending means that many more thoughts are just sort of flying through. And people with ADHD tend to have more original, creative, innovative thoughts. Um, they're not all gonna be great, they're not all going to be uh, creating a new business and making the CEO of it, but with more thoughts, there'll be more opportunity for that. And there is an unusual, for example, amount of people who are CEOs of companies that they did think of and who have ADHD. So that's a factor. The impulsivity that can be a problem, for example, very much so in adolescence, can be a strength when uh, channeled in the right direction. So the propensity to risk-taking, which is a symptom, and impulsivity, the I got a great idea and I'm gonna go for it. Go for it right now um, in a very, very driven and hyper-focused way is something that can be a huge advantage to somebody with ADHD where somebody else might go, oh, I don't know, what about all these risks I'm thinking about, I'm concerned about, I, I better stop it on the brakes, you know, maybe I never do it. So what's really important is that while these can be great strengths and make some people with ADHD highly, highly um, successful in their arenas, it is important to consider you know, what might work best for you. So sometimes that means working with somebody who doesn't have ADHD, like pairing abilities, you know, like I've got I got the idea, I'm the idea guy, you know, and I want to run with it. And you, you know, love, you know, the minutia detail, which I can't bear and won't be able to do. And so finding complementing strengths in people that you work with, trying to, for example, kids in school have educators aware and give you the opportunity to show what you know through the prism of stuff you're interested in. So are you a more visual learner? Are you more auditory learner? Are you like young and so jazzed about moving vehicles that, you know, math and moving vehicles or English and writing about moving vehicles or whatever it might be would be a way to show your skills and develop your skills while keeping your interest up that allows you to really be involved and learn. So there are lots of things to think about, but the point overall is there are these particular strengths. They are known about. 
Um, there are hardwiring explanations for them. And kids who have the opportunity to play play to that and adults, you know, um, it's good for them. I don't know where I learned that I hyper-focused, but knowing that, uh, to your point of early intervention, I believe it was my dad who said something like, yeah, but at least you can hyper-focus, <laughs> whatever. And I was kind of an anomaly in that what I was super interested in was learning for the most part. Yeah, there were some subjects that I found a lot more difficult, but I liked to excel. I liked being at the top of the class, so I would hyper-focus on that. It wasn't until later on in life when it wasn't just about learning and like getting to the, I almost felt like I was like climbing this ladder through school. And then I was just at a job and I'm like, oh my God, I cannot think like this is so difficult for me. But now well, one of the benefits of that is it was a big push for me starting my own business and, and really figuring out, taking that time to figure out what is it that I'm always interested in, that I'm always learning about? And that came back to really the power of the mind. So that was always sort of my interest in like expanding my own mind and seeing what I can do with it. And now I know in my business, like there are still times that yes, ADD days <laughs> make me kind of spiral and then I can get to beating myself up, which doesn't help anybody at all. It just sort of exacerbates all the symptoms. But I eventually learned exactly what you said, where I know like, okay, this is my idea and this is how far I can get. And I know I'm just going to get in my own way after this. So at this point, I need to lay out the processes so I can outsource it to somebody else. And then they kind of take it from there and we're able to work together. There's still some gaps <laughs> in what I currently have and what I currently need, but it's it's something that I'm always working on and adding that extra level for me, since my interest is that like power of the mind and what what's really driving my behavior is almost making it a case study for myself. Like, okay, well, what if I do this? Does this work? What if I say this to myself? What if I set up all these little rituals around or what if I turn on the essential oil? Maybe that'll like, <laughs> like spawn a new thing. And some of the things work and some of them work for a short period of time. And then I need to find a new tool, <laughs> but, but kind of keeping that mixed up and, and remembering the thing that I'm interested in and sort of seeing how much I can align that back is really, really helpful for me. But the problem is, is that when somebody goes to seek help, they tend to only really have or feel like they have access to the standard route that we have in the medical system. And so they go in, they get a diagnosis, they might get medication and then they're on their way. And so how do you recommend people find some of these ways to cope with their difficulties and nurture their strengths if they don't have access to like the best psychologist in their small town or whatever it is? Well, getting the diagnosis does let you find the person who treats that diagnosis. And I wish that it were more clearly regulated in some way that I could give people a really short answer. It, it's, it's murkier than I wish that it were. Therapist is not a regulated word at all. You can call yourself a therapist. Uh, anybody can call themselves therapist. It mean, doesn't mean anything, actually. Um, and not all therapies are created equal. That is for sure. So there are a lot of people who call themselves therapists and they do maybe what they would consider supportive psychotherapy, like, oh, that's hard. And, you know, let me, let me be empathetic and listen, but it's really not treating the issue at hand. So I think it's important that people consider the credential of who they're going to see. Psychiatrists can prescribe, psychologists cannot. Uh, masters of social work cannot. 
Um, if you are seeing a psychologist, you're seeing them for some sort of psychotherapy, uh, which in many cases is, is great and you don't need medications. Lots of psychologists will treat you and along the way, if they think, hey, you do need medication, they'll, they'll tell you that if they would like to refer you in addition to a psychiatrist for the medication backup. But look at the credential of the person. Are, you know, do they have a PhD in psychology or a PsyD? So have they, did they have the training? Look at what they say their specialty is. If they say generic, like, I just want to enhance your life. I don't know if I would go that route. I really would say, you know, if you have ADHD, go to somebody who treats adults with ADHD. And, and if you want to learn coping tools that are not medication, then go to a psychologist who treats ADHD not be prescribing you anything. They will tell you based on what they're seeing, whether they think you maybe should consider that, but they are going to be in the business of teaching coping tools, ways to manage, ways to manage your mind with ADHD. That's true, for example, of anxiety disorders. The anxiety disorders respond well to cognitive behavioral therapies and psychodynamic psychotherapies. Difference being cognitive behavioral therapies look at the thought, maybe then they try to uh, change that thought, tell yourself a amended thought, evaluate the uh, value of the original thought and whether that's really consistent with reality and make changes that are more consistent with reality. And that will help you change behaviors. Does it look back at your earlier life, et cetera, or unconscious conflict? That's what psychodynamic psychotherapy does. So if there's been early trauma, difficulty, things that maybe are informing your anxiety disorder, that would be a psychodynamic psychotherapy that would be helpful. Some psychiatrists do therapy too, in addition to medication, if they've had training. Um, I, for example, am a psychiatrist, but I'm also a psychoanalyst. Um, I did both of those trainings. So I, I, do, I, I never saw anyone for medication without also doing uh, a, a form of psychotherapy on them. And in fact, many of my patients weren't on medication at all because I didn't think that they required that. I thought they could benefit enough from the psychotherapy. So it's, it's a matter of looking for the person and asking them, what is your area of expertise? How long have you been treating people for this problem? What is your degree? You know, what, what area uh, of training have you had? And uh, so, you know, unfortunately, some people end up seeing someone who's had, you know, a couple of weekends of classes and they call themselves a coach or, you know, life coach or, um, and not that that person can't help coach your life in certain ways, but that's not really a great person to see for trying to treat a particular mental illness or learning disability. So I think it is, you do have to try to look at what the credentials of the person are and what they they present as a good case for that being their area of expertise. Well, I think we have a lot to work with. And the biggest takeaway for me is just understanding that so many times we get a diagnosis or, or and it feels like just like impending doom. <laughs> like, oh no, this is just laying out that I am not going to be what I hope to be. And learning how to manage it can be really the key to being able to access some of these greater abilities that come with it as well. And oh, there are a lot of things that 
most people don't even know that they have access to. And if, if they just know that, then maybe there's an avenue to find it. And so for listeners who are resonating and they want to learn more about this, and I know you have such a wealth of information around the coping mechanisms and the, the genius that come with all of these things, where's the best place for listeners to connect with you and to find your book? Sure. Well, I do want to say that I think that is the most important point. You know, people often delay diagnosis because they're afraid in themselves or in their child that it means, you know, all of their hopes and dreams for their lives are no more. And that really could not be further from the truth. Um, And so I hope people do leave with the understanding that it's important to, to treat, but to not spend all your time treating, to in fact, look, help your child or help yourself look for those areas of strength play to those strengths and spend time in that. And in fact, um, you know, as you would see if you, if you read the book, I, I, you know, the many, many, many people who knowingly or unknowingly did just that and are wildly successful people. So it doesn't mean that at all. Of course, people can find out more information about this specifically in the book, The Power of Different Link Between Disorder and Genius. But I'm, uh, I'm around on Twitter at Dr. Gales, you know, dr. Gail Saltz at um, Instagram at Dr. Gail Saltz, LinkedIn. And I should mention that I have a podcast called How Can I Help, um, where people can send me questions, which I do answer in the podcast, of course, anonymously, so you don't have to identify yourself and I won't identify you in any way. But um, it's for listener questions. If you have any questions that you would like me to tackle, um, it's How Can I Help? And it's on iHeartMedia and Seneca Women. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x99. Your challenge for this week is to challenge your beliefs about yourself. And here's the great news, is that this is a skill and a challenge that I've brought up in so many episodes because I really believe that this is the foundation for anything that we want to build upon. It's learning to challenge our existing beliefs about ourselves. If we are not exactly where we want to be, often the biggest thing holding us back is ourselves. Yeah, we can blame all of these external factors or the way that we were born or what it feels like to do our day to day. And honestly, a lot of those things might even be true. But guess what? A lot of things seem true if we convince ourselves that they're true. But what I want you to ask is, what else is true? Like, yes, I was diagnosed with ADHD, and I've struggled with depression, and anxiety, and addictions, and nail-biting, and bulimia. And I was told that all of those things were going to be with me for the rest of my life. And some of those struggles still come up, but the way that I've been able to thrive is that I found my workarounds. And the only reason I was able to do that was because I really believed that I could. And I didn't always believe that I could. I had to start with my mindset. I had to start rewiring all of those beliefs that became so ingrained that I couldn't get out of them. And once I made a little bit of progress, then I was able to actually take action. And so where's that starting point for you? Only you know. So let me know how it goes. Or if you need help sussing it out, hit me up on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you want to support MindLove, the best way to do that is by joining MindLove Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get all sorts of goodies, like over 50 exclusive episodes that are only available to premium members. You get early release, an ad-free listening experience, and also bonus meditations. 
You can also support one of my sponsors and you can find a list of all of them at mindlove.com slash sponsors. Or you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time.